I think I was 18 the last time that happened, but I, I don't want it to ever happen. Um, we, and so you're going to notice some similarities between this worksheet and uh, worksheets from weeks gone by. Um, this is the third time I've looked over Psalm 48, so I'm excited to finally get here. Um, I wanted to begin, you'll notice uh, the title that I've put on Psalm 48 is, uh, it reflects a song we often sing. It's kind of a neat backstory. I don't know what you know about or think about our songbook uh, or the songs that we sing. Uh, I don't think I'm telling you something you don't know when I say that the majority of those are not written by members of the church. Is that something you already knew when you came to class today? Um, but some of them are. Uh, if you'll look is in the Praise for the Lord songbook in the rack in front of you, you'll uh, and if you know church history to some degree, uh, you will be able to pick out some of those that were written by members of the church. Alexander Campbell, a name often associated with the Restoration Movement. He's got a song in our songbook. This song, There Is a Habitation, uh, is written by someone who was a product of the Restoration Movement. If you know the name Walter Scott from church history, he was one who was leading us back to... Um, uh, to do Bible things in Bible ways, to restore New Testament Christianity. He was an influence on the man who wrote this song. Uh, and their family was also uh, influenced by Alexander Campbell. So that's just kind of a neat thing. Uh, it was then written in the 19th century. Some of our, a lot of our songs, I suppose, kind of fall into that uh, category. I wanted to let you know this. There are individuals who are still uh, within the body of Christ who are writing uh, hymns among our brethren. Um, I can't think of her name off the top of my head, but uh, the mother-in-law of the preacher at Eastwood has written several uh, hymns, uh, a few of which we sing on a regular basis. Uh, back about 10 years ago, um, baptized a young man uh, who uh, came out of a, kind of a charismatic background, uh, and to this date, he has written 25 or 26 hymns. Uh, so uh, there's a fellow named Andy Robinson up in West Virginia. He's the director of the West Virginia School of Preaching. He's probably written 100 songs. Uh, and there are songs certainly that are contemporary, but a lot of songs we sing week to week are older songs, and this is one of them. And sometimes the poetry of those songs those lyrics are such that we sing them all the time. You know them, you know them by heart, but you really perhaps, at least I can say for me, I haven't really thought deeply about the meaning of those words or I don't reflect on them in the moment. Uh, and as, whereas Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, I will sing with the Spirit, I will sing with the understanding, uh, I think it's important for us not to just breeze over that uh, and to remind ourselves. For example, uh, O thou fount of every blessing, now, it's, um, we don't speak in King James, but we sing in King James quite a bit. So, O thou, doesn't bother me, O you, of every blessing. No problem with that, right? Now, in the second verse, it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Now, Mike, hold off just a second. I know you know the answer to this. How many of you know what that means? Here I raise my Ebenezer. Has nothing to do with Scrooge or a Christmas carol. But it does have a biblical significance. All right, anybody want to tell me? I mean, we all sing it. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither, or by this, again, that's not a word we use all the time, by you our help has come. 
1 Samuel 7 and verse 12. Uh, Samuel is leading the people of God and the Philistines are being confounded and they're, they're not able to catch up with the Israelites. And so in Mizpashin, uh they lay down um, the, a stone they call Ebenezer, stone of deliverance and rock of help. So uh, that's a song we often sing. Of course, another one we've mentioned before, Night with Eben Pinion. Can somebody explain that to me? Night, we got pretty good, right? Night, that's the opposite of the day. With Eben Pinion. Black wings. All right, so what are we referring to? Night with Eben Pinion. Brooded or the veil. All around was silent, save the night winds well. When do we normally sing that song? For the Lord's Supper. So we would think it would point us to what events? Okay, the crucifixion. In this case, it would be uh, the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm not trying, I hope you don't think I'm trying to shame you. I, I'm, I, this is something we've all been through. But, but if we're going to actually speak those words to admonish one another and to praise our God, we need to think about what they mean. And I've said all that to say, as we come to Psalm chapter 48, O Zion, Zion, I long thy gates to see. What do you think that's being referenced when we sing that song? I long to be in the holy city. All right, so where does that point us to? Heaven. That's right. Um, Zion means so much more than that. In fact, in the New Testament, Zion refers to more than just heaven. Anybody know what else Zion refers to in the New Testament? Okay, so in, in the physical sense, in its original sense, Jerusalem is the, the nickname. Zion is a nickname for the city of Jerusalem. What else in a figurative sense besides um, the city of Jerusalem? And by the way, that's, that's really kind of its original uh, meaning. How about somebody turn to Hebrews 12, verse 23, really quickly. Hebrews 12, 23. And whoever's first to get that, if you wouldn't mind reading it to us. Hebrews 12, 23. Okay, keep reading there until we come across Okay, and you're doing well. I, I misdirected you there. You'll read all day and won't get to it. Go back a verse. Go back to 22. Okay, now, with the context, what, how is Zion used right here? Of what? Keep reading. It's all referring to the same thing. Okay, the church. All right, so there's an evolution in the idea of Zion when we begin to study it in the Old Testament. Um, geographically, Zion would have meant something to the Jews as they're both uh, conquering the city and then later on, the second king of Israel, David, is going to build his uh, residence, his house on the south end of what we call the Temple Mount, and that's Mount Zion there. And so it became known as Zion came to be synonymous with um, the city of David. Uh, it was known as the city of Jerusalem, it was Zion. It became known as the nation of Israel on the whole. And then it began to take on a spiritual significance. And so that's why when we sing, O Zion, Zion, I long thy face to see, that the, the place where the church is going, 
the ultimate city of God, the place where we'll be with God in His home forever, in its perfect and ideal sense, is heaven. So with that in our background, let's read Psalm chapter 48 together this morning. It's a shorter psalm. And if you have over your... Um, your psalm, a, some kind of a description from whoever uh, did your Bible. Mine says, The beauty and glory of Zion, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. All right, we'll say more about that a little bit later. Uh, it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. All right, so whoever's writing this is writing from somewhere in the, uh, in the southern Judean region, south of Jerusalem, which is kind of central or north central in uh, the land of Palestine. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. For lo, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it, then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind you break the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. And go around her, count her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation, for such is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death. Now you should get some kind of an impression of the emphasis of the psalmist here as you read through Psalm 48. If you were to try to describe or summarize this psalm or the tone of this psalm or what he's trying to convey, what would you say? What's his point? All right, God is there. God is always present. And where? Where is God present in this psalm? Specifically. In Zion. You have the emphasis. You have that word. And what is Zion seen to be in this psalm? Focused on? The city of David. Jerusalem. All right, so... Remember, this is the songbook of the children of Israel. They're singing this. The sons of Korah uh, would have been a um, uh, little different time than David's time, but it would have been uh, songs that they would have sung uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. If you're singing this, what's said about Zion? How's it described? It's holy. And what, is the, what does the psalmist want us to do with regard to Zion? Yeah, Re respect it, reverence it. Why? What would make you do that as you read this psalm? What does, he, what does he point to you, point out to you? Look toward the end of the psalm. Now this is hard for us. Um, if you've seen a picture of Jerusalem today and you were to look at the buildings that are there, they're all, they may be older, but they're not first century and they're certainly not uh, pre-Christ on the whole. And if they are, they're ruins. Now, this would have been the time in which the, the uh, temple of Solomon would have been existent. Now, it's, not, it's going to be de destroyed when the children of Judah go up into Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. is when it's going to be destroyed. A man by the name of Herod the Great is going to rebuild the temple. Uh, he did several great building projects. And so, by the time of the first century, 
If you'll remember from Matthew chapter 24, Jesus and the apostles are coming out of the temple. And what do they say? Do you remember in Matthew 24? Look at how great. Look at how beautiful the temple is. Look at the, and it was, it was never more splendid than in the days of Herod the Great. How did the Jews feel about Jerusalem and their nation? That they was going to last forever. That they were special. Any other ways you would describe it? That's, I think y'all are being kind. Maybe if you're a little less kind, how would you say that Israel saw themselves? Okay. God's people. If you look at this psalm, the picture is we're better. We're elite. We're exclusive. And at times throughout history, perhaps that has been a way that people have felt that Israel saw themselves. Now, they were God's chosen people, right? It was the promise made to Abraham. And if you remember Moses' words, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, he says, if you walk obediently, if you keep my covenants and you walk in my statutes, what promise did God make to them? How long would they be his people? Forever. Now, how is it then that they're not his special people today? They didn't keep his covenants. Repeatedly, they didn't keep his covenants. And ultimately, if you go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29, God knew that no human could keep a written covenant. We could not be justified by any law. Paul's going to make that point in the book of Romans. If we could, it would have been the law of Moses, but it's impossible to do. And yet God was using the law for a a different purpose in Galatians chapter 3. He says it's a schoolmaster. It's a tutor. If you want to think of it, it's like the school bus. It's taking people from Moses to God's ultimate plan, who is Christ. And so what's true of Israel in the Old Testament, what's still true of Israel by the time that Christ comes But he comes to bring true righteousness, Matthew 5 and verse 20, versus the superficial righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. God has an ultimate plan. Who are Abraham's descendants today? Okay, and who's the us? Christians, those who are in Christ. You go to Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither male nor female, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither Jew nor uh, Greek, but you are all the sons of God by Faith in Christ Jesus. So what what edification, what value does Psalm 48 have for us today? We can look back and we can see that God ultimately had a bigger, a different plan for the Zion in its ideal sense. That it was not always going to be Israel. Israel was essential to God's plan because Israel brought us the Savior, the Christ, that died for us so that through him we can be in him and be the descendants of Abraham. And when we do that, Hebrews 12 says that we are enrolled in that Mount Zion, that spiritual Zion of the church. And it makes it possible for us to go to that ultimate Zion of heaven. There's a whole lot more we can say about Psalm 48, but I thought I would just point that out to you. Any thoughts, comments, questions about Psalm 48? Yes, sir, Daryl. Yeah, and you know, and it's an interesting thing. God's word always served in that way. Um, and I wrote down some notes of just 
no time to talk about all of it, but that's a great point. It, it brings it up. When you think about Zion as it's presented here in this psalm, it's a place where God was to be recognized and praised, verse 1. It was a place of utter reverence, as Miss Dolores said, verse 4 through 7. It was a place to think on God's loving kindness, his name and his praise, verse 10. That's an illusion. How do we think on it? Through the word. It's a place of gladness, joy, and justice, verse 11. How do we know about that? Through God's word. It's a place of safety, verse 12 and 13. It's a place of guidance. And so the point is God is accomplishing all of that spiritually through the church. But he's, this is inspired uh, writ here that gives us those same comforts. Great observation. Very good. Anything else? All right. As we often do, it's funny how these psalms go uh, back to back to one another. And we're really going to see that in the next two psalms. Because when you get to Psalm chapter 50, does anybody, of course, we know what's after Psalm 50 is Psalm 51. Uh, Before we get to 51, when I say Psalm 51, does anything come to mind? David. David, right? I'd say Psalm 51 is one of the top five most recognized and most studied psalms in the the hymn book of Israel. But before you get there, you get to Psalm chapter 50. And in Psalm chapter 50, we are going to take the time to read that because it's a powerful psalm. Um, And so I'm going to get somebody, if they would, if if your uh, vocal cords are good and limbered up, I want you to read Psalm 50. It's 1 through 23. Anybody? He shall call to the heavens from above. Let the heavens declare his right against you. I am God, the Lord. I were hungry, I would not, and all that is on, and pay your vows to the most. Call upon me in the days. What right have you, salvation of God? Okay. I think it's always good for us when we come to a psalm to, to train ourselves to look above it. Now, we realize that between your Psalm 50 and verse 1, those, are, those things are not inspired, but they are very helpful. For example, underneath Psalm 50, what does your Bible say? Okay, God the righteous judge, what else? Okay, we'll get to that in just a moment. I want to, anybody, any different description besides that? A description of the psalm itself. Okay, before we get to the author, um, a description of the psalm. Does anybody else have like in the study Bible? Say, All right, okay, so that was a little bit more exhaustive. So read, read it to me one more time. Okay. All right, so a contrast between true and false faith. And then God, because of his nature, is worthy uh, of praise and, and, and righteousness. Anything different? God himself is judged. So we kind of begin to see a theme. I think this is very helpful. It certainly reflects what's in the psalm. There are three parties, three entities, three groups in Psalm chapter 50. Who are they? Lays out pretty simply for us. Who's one? We can just check that off real quick. Okay, righteous is, the, is one. He's not as specific as to say who it is. We do assume it's Israel, but it's the righteous. Who else? The wicked. And who's that last category? So, do you notice, maybe get a little hint in the title of this psalm. This is talking about covenant. A covenant's between two parties. So, who's the other party in the covenant being described here in Psalm 50? Okay, so that's the righteous, the saved. We have the righteous, we have the wicked. Who's the other party? God. All right, so then that's why God, the righteous judge. God's worthy of praise and worship. All right, so that's going to be helpful to us. This psalm is about covenant. What is a covenant? It's a promise. 
Okay, it involves a promise. Maybe a contract. A contract. That's a good way to put that. So uh, say that uh, I, I say to Harold, hey, Harold, I want to come and paint your house. Um, so let's get together and let's draw up a contract. And uh, you uh, tell me what you think my work is worth. All right, so $50. I'll come paint your whole house for $50. And uh, so, huh? Tomorrow? No, probably next week. I'm a little busy. With that kind of prices, I'm kind of backed up. Um, and it, so we'll talk about materials and all of that, specs and so forth. And so um, I'm going to do work, right, that's specified in that agreement. And then at the end of that, I'm going to come uh, to Harold and I'm going to say, all right, Harold, now I want my $4,000. What's he going to say? What's, what's wrong with that? You broke the contract. That's not what the contract says. What's the contract say? $50. And if y'all, look, you get what you pay for. So if you ever want me to come paint your house, keep that in mind. Um, so a contract is a good way to describe a covenant. There's different kinds of covenants. In this kind of a covenant, you have God offering. And again, we go back to the book of Deuteronomy. If you're obedient, if you walk in my statutes and my, and my, uh, uh, my word, what does God say he's going to do? What's his part of the contract? He's going to reward us. So here's what that meant to Israel in the long ago. It meant that your crops are going to come forth, that you're going to be protected in battle, and all that would mean the preservation of the nation. All right. So the psalmist is talking about the covenant that God wants to have with his people. But people fall into two categories throughout the Bible. It's a very simple way for us to understand. And much of the psalm is devoted to the righteous, to the ones who do obey and the ones who are blessed as a result of that. But he also spends some time talking about the wicked and the problem with the wicked trying to be in covenant with God. Now here's the question. The wicked that are here, do they seem to want to have the blessings and the rewards of God? Of course. Let's think more broadly today. Anybody who professes any kind of even nebulous belief in God, don't they want the blessings of God? And now whether we're talking about the natural blessings of the rain and the sunshine, or if it is for somebody who's desperate for God to help them and to step in and to, uh, uh, to walk with them through whatever difficulty it is, people want that. Now, on the other side of what, what does God expect of me, they, they may not really want to do that part. And that's these folks in verse 16 through 22. He describes them and he says, and we'll talk more about them in just a moment, but they want the blessings, but they don't want to conform to God's side, what God expects of them in that covenant. All right, now you notice that Asaph is the writer of Psalms. Typically when you think of the Psalms, don't you think of David praising or pleading with God? And it is good, as we've mentioned before, David is the author of at least 73 of the Psalms, almost half of the Psalm book of Israel. Um, but there are other uh, writers of the Psalms. Do you remember? From, I think that was class number one. Who else wrote Psalms besides? Now you have a hint right here. All right, so we have the sons of Korah. They write 11 of them. Uh, Asaph writes 12 of them. Who else? Moses wrote the 90th Psalm. Who else? Can you know anybody else? How about David's son? Solomon. He wrote two, Psalm 73 and Psalm 127. And then there were two of the Ezraites who wrote Psalms. If you want to take notes, and I may even have a slide on this. I, I forget. I get to, There we go. Look at that. I don't have the numbers on all of them. Um, I kind of did it in descending numerical order there. Uh, but you have Heman and you have Ethan the Ezraite. And I also note for you, uh, 
that there are 50 orphaned psalms. Anybody know what that means? We don't know. All right. They'll be unattributed. There's no real way to look into the psalm and to be able to see um, who the writer was. Um, This psalm, remember earlier in the class I told you that psalms classified in different ways. They were types of psalms. Um, There are... uh, Uh, thanksgiving psalms, there are psalms of lament or psalms of sorrow. Uh, This is a liturgical psalm. Does anybody, we've talked about this earlier in the class, I don't expect you to remember, we don't use the word liturgy all the time. There are some religious groups that are liturgical in their sense, but does anybody know what that word means? What does a liturgy have to do with? Okay, um, no, that's a very educated guess, but no, it's not wisdom. Liturgy. It's a worship song. So liturgy is the functions, the things that one goes through. Maybe you've gone to a religious service uh, at times where it was very scripted. And you walk in the door and so maybe the person who's leading the service says something. And maybe there's uh, people will respond to that, maybe in, antiphonally. That is, the person up front says it, and then the people in the pews say it. And then they stand at certain times, and then they sit at certain times, and then they kneel, and then there's certain things they say in English, and maybe they even say it in different languages, in Latin and so forth. All right, so that's all called liturgy. That's how that word is used today. But it was a part of Old Testament worship, that there were certain things that you did. We understand that, right? Go back to the book of Leviticus. To go in the presence of God, what was part of the liturgy in order to to worship him? What did you have to do? Or you couldn't worship God. It was was central to worship. You had to be clean. So there was a ritual cleansing that you had to do. Hebrews 6 talks about that. What else had to happen every time? There's different types. You had to have sacrifices. Right, that's part of the liturgy. Very good. That you, you have to do these things over and over again. Now, there are liturgical elements to our worship. Would you agree? A psalm before the Lord's Supper? Yeah. Do you have to have a psalm before the Lord's Supper? No. We had to stop for a moment and think about that. All right, but no, we don't. What else? What else would you say would be a liturgical function of what we do? Now, y'all stopped, y'all stopped preaching. Y'all went to meddling right there. I don't know about that. All right, yeah, so what if, what if Clint got up today and led us in five songs instead of three? First of all, you need to take off your watch, put it on the, on the pew. Don't worry about that. We're worshiping God. But is, that's okay. And we know it's okay, but typically, I'll tell you, song leaders will say, I want to kind of conform, generally speaking, to such and so forth. All right, here's another liturgical feature of our worship. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just pointing it out. Which comes first in worship, the Lord's Supper or preaching? Have you ever worshipped at a church where the preaching went first and the Lord's Supper came later? Okay. I'll go to gospel meeting. You know what I do when I go to a gospel meeting? I'll go in and I'll ask the preacher, because I just want to be prepared, you know, because it could be the first song, and next thing you know, I'm supposed to be up there preaching, and I'm waiting for the Lord's Supper. So that doesn't matter. It does matter that we do those, right, because those are are prescribed acts of worship. Um, we have gotten into what I think is a wonderful practice, but it's, it's a liturgy. It is something that we do as a matter of form, not something that's outlined for us in Scripture. And um, we've mentioned it before. We stand for the reading of God's Word. Can we sit and still be reverent to God? Can you sing Soldiers of Christ Arise and stay seated and it still be scriptural? Yes, because is that talking about standing up physically? Soldiers of Christ arise. That's about what you do on Monday through Saturday. And it might be the person that you're sitting next to when you're working with them. 
right? It has nothing to do with your posture in worship. And so we, we go through certain forms that's just fine. Here's what's not fine. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus talks about, he's talking to religious people. And he says, this people draws near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. But what's the second part of that? Their hearts are far from me. What we don't want to do is make ourselves so comfortable with the rhythm of the service, the three songs and a prayer, that we're not thinking about night with ebon pinion. Or uh, here I raise my Ebenezer. And we're just, and I'm going to tell you the truth. I have gone through the singing portion of the worship more than once. And when I thought back on it, now maybe there have been other times I didn't think back on it, where I sang with, with gusto, but I don't know that I thought very deeply about what it was that I was, I was singing. So that's, I'm throwing that in for free. Uh, when it comes to our, our worship with God, we want to make sure that our hearts are engaged that we are not just following an outward liturgy that is devoid of the kind of heart that God wants from us. It's not an either-or proposition. He wants truth and he wants spirit. Now, all of that. You have a preacher teaching a Bible class, he might start preaching sometime. I'm back to Bible class teacher now. This is a liturgical psalm. This is a psalm about worship in Psalm chapter 50. And I want us to notice three things about this psalm. We have in it the covenant maker in verse 1 through 6. He is described in various ways. If you look through the psalm, you can see it. How is God described in this psalm? Start with verse 1. He's mighty. How else is he described? Somebody said it. He's Lord. What does that indicate? What does Lord mean to us? Or what does it mean from the Bible? If God is Lord, what does that indicate? I'm glad. Yeah, there we go. Thank you very much. And, and, and it may be, here's what I'm, I'm thinking. Multiple things could be happening. Maybe it's about 10 till the class is over, maybe zoned out a little bit. That's fine. Or maybe it is that this is something that we don't think. You haven't been asked that in Bible class. But that's important. It's an important aspect of this psalm. That not only is he the mighty one, what does that indicate? His power, but he is Lord. He's our master. He's the one in charge. He's in control. In verse 1, you'll also find him simply described as God. Verse 6, he's a judge. See, these are aspects of his nature. So who is it that is the covenant maker, the one who originates the covenant? I need to see not only that it's God, but I need to see how God is described in this psalm. You, you might want to add to that, if you would, um, how he's described. In verse 3, he's shining forth. In verse 3 and 4, he displays his power. And in this psalm and others, the, he has the heavens declaring his righteousness. And so he's the one who declares in verse 5, Gather my godly ones to me. So we have here a covenant in which God's the originator. And he's saying, uh, based on my character and my nature, I have the ability to form this contract with you. Here's who I am. I'm the one that's calling you into covenant. All right, so then second we have the covenant takers. Who are the covenant takers? Verse 7 through 15, it's the, it's the ones the psalm is mostly about. It's the ones that we want to be. It's the godly ones. That's how he describes them, my godly ones in verse 7 through 15. Their task is to listen to God speak. Verse 7. That needs to be our disposition. Speak, Lord. 
for your servant hears. That's what Samuel said. That ought to be our disposition. Now, I'm not telling you something you're not going to be able to figure out by the time the middle of December gets here. We are going through a series of sermons on 1 Timothy. Hiram started in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Last week, we're going to be looking in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It is a unique letter in Scripture because it has such an emphasis on doctrine and what's supposed to come from doctrine. One of the key words of 1 Timothy is godliness. And so God wants us to know how to be his godly ones. What does that look like? Well, it's a bunch of specific things. It does have to do with your demeanor, having the right attitude, not having a foul mouth and some of those kinds of things. But it also has to do with your position, your practice on the role of women, on who qualifies to be an elder or who can be deacons. Or what makes for sound preaching. And all those kinds of things. And so um, those who are going to enter into covenant with God are the ones who are going to be listening when he speaks. Because that's what matters. We know John 12, 48, that's what's going to judge us in the last day. These godly ones are reminded that while God is the one who is calling for worship, for sacrifices and offerings, verse 8 and 9, it's not because he needs them. In fact, he already owns all those sacrifices, verse 9 through 13. But it's because we need to offer sacrifices, verse 14 and 15. So let me ask you for just a second. Why is it that God knows that we need to make sacrifices and offerings to him? If he already owns it all, why does he expect us to give on the first day of the week if he already owns everything? Why does he need us to come before him and praise him if he already knows that he is worthy of all praise. What's the purpose of that? To to show our love, it's for us. It is for him. That's That's it. He wants to see the level of our commitment. So you look at passages that we often refer to and you see the the double purpose of them. Like Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. You're very familiar with that. Let us consider how to stimulate one another unto love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. And then he launches off into a discussion about the judgment to come. God doesn't need to us... For him to be stimulated unto love and good deeds, he is love. 1 John 4 and verse 8. He is good, James 1 and verse 17. We need reminders of that. We need to encourage one another. It measures the level of our commitment. All right. That's all out of Psalm chapter 50. Or at least we can make application from there. And then we have the covenant breakers, the wicked, in verse 16 through 22. Uh, And the thing that's remarkable about them, and and I do... For those who are getting, having withdrawal from my um, alliteration, I've got some for you here. We have their disqualification. Verse 16. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? What he's saying there is you have no right. Why do they have no right? Why do the wicked have no right? Because they're not committed. Because they're not living the way God says. For the, they're not holding up their end of the covenant. Yeah. That's it. Now, the actions are important, but they have got to be wed to the right kind of heart, right? Because we can have the right heart and not do the right things. That's not acceptable. But we can have do the right things and not from the right heart, and we're in the same place. 
with God. Great point. All right? So um, we have their disobedience in verse 17 through 20, and that's a big part of this. They hate discipline. These are people who want to be in covenant with God, but they ignore his words, verse 17. They have fellowship with evildoers, verse 18. They sin with their tongue, verse 19 and 20. And then I say that there's their delusion. After the fact that this is the way that they're living, what in essence is what they think, according to verse 21? How do they think God feels about the way they're living? These things, God's talking here, have you done, and I kept silence. Therefore, what? You thought that I was altogether such a one as yourself. In other words, God's saying, you think, I think, like you think. You feel, I feel, like you feel. What does God say about that kind of thinking? I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to set this in order in your eyes. Now, how is he doing that? Does he, does he help encourage us? In that way? Absolutely. That's what this psalm can do for us. And so what God is saying to the wicked, and the wicked are those who we've just described right here, is don't think that because a lightning bolt doesn't hit you when you're living like the world and then you're wanting to be in covenant with me, that I'm okay with your living wickedly. Because I'm going to set it in order before your eyes. When is God going to do that? For the wicked and the judgment. Does God want to do that? Of course not. We're going to see more about that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. It's not what he wants. But for the wicked who persist in that, the breakers of the covenant, that's what in his love, that's what he preserves for us in his word, for us to know that. That that's the outcome of those who persist in that way. But to show this, we have his directions to the wicked. He doesn't just leave them right there in that condition. Look at verse 22. Now consider this. You who forget God, please listen to what I'm saying while there's a chance for deliverance to take place. And he ends the psalm by saying, He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. We don't want to lose sight of the fact that he is a righteous judge who is going to judge the world in righteousness by Jesus. But he wants to show us salvation. He wants us to be in covenant with him. He longs for that so much that he gave the very best in order for us to have it. Now I know we need the New Testament to help us to appreciate Psalm 50. But God knew the New Testament was coming when Psalm 50 was written. And as Paul would say in Romans 15, 4, and he would say it again in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, these things that were written in the Old Testament help us. They're instruction They encourage us to live the way God wants us to live. And God wants us to be in covenant with him today. It's done differently. It's done through Christ and his will. But it's what he wants because he wants us with him forever. That's it. Yeah. So you think about, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13. Uh, Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. That's it. That's That's the way. That Chuck is describing. Very good. I'll give, let that be the last word. We'll start with Psalm 51 next week. Thanks very much for your attention today.